Welcome, everyone, to a very solemn episode 283 of Breaking Kids. Are you sniffing in there, Barry? I'm a little sad, yeah. You're, you're a little verklempt. Episode 283, Breaking Kids, with Bowden and Barry, a very mournful, sorrowful episode. Barry, the folks took the announcement last week that we are coming to the, as the traveling Wilburys uh, once sang, coming to the end of the line. But, Barry, we still got like four months to go, people. I mean, come on. Yeah, and I've got a uh, a calendar where I'm just checking those weeks off as I uh, as we head into retirement. Here was the other aspect. First off, the response was great. Uh, you know, look, we love you guys. It, it, obviously, a lot of love shown our way. We encourage you keep up with this via the Patreon, and you know that Patreon does become a big deal in the sense because we are going to be producing new content, putting it out there. It's five dollars a month, five bucks. You go to Starbucks. I think it's like seven. Plus, bucks. you get the additional content, so it's really like two fifty. There you go. It's like, and then you get access to all the old. Patrons. Yes, you do, and you get all that stuff that it, you know that's there. And but you'll be able to keep with us that way. And look, it isn't that Jeff and I won't even stop uh, the podcast, but you know, at our age, we're we're both heading into retirement in some form. So it was. How dare you say that about me? Yes, Sonny. I got oh, no. Let me put my teeth in here. I got to soak my feet. But I, Jeff, I received uh, four messages, emails, text messages, four four different types of communication with a similar theme. Hey, man, is everything okay? Is your health all right? People. Yeah, it's have, funny. I didn't get those. Well, Apparently, Jeff, because you people didn't, not concerned about my health. No, it's because you also didn't cancel your fan fest at the same week that the yes, podcast. Yes, is. thank you for not making that announcement. Literally the day after our episode came out, very, very, very well done. Yeah. Well, but I did. I alluded to it on the podcast as well, where I basically said there's a great chance we're going to be wrapping up. But it, uh, it looked, it, it happened, and uh, it for a variety of reasons. And I got to say, if you're listening to this podcast, you guys are the ones who supported the fan fest. So I am eternally grateful, but this current economic environment, and there's obviously a couple of other factors that are in there, but it has become almost impossible, but people had somehow read through that. And I guess I get it right. And they had said, wow, you know, you obviously love the podcast and love the fan fest. And why would you quit both at the same time? Your health must be taking a real hit. So let me go on the record and say this very Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. You got Lou, it. Join, join me in grabbing a pen here. We're going to go on the record. Please. Continue. Lou, you got this? You got this? You're writing this down? Oh, you bet. You, right. you bet I am. If I have health issues, I'm not aware of them. I have so, health no, if, issues. If oh, I'm I, sorry. I was writing it down. What now? Okay. It, wait, I'll go. If I have if health issues. Health issues. Is your insurance up to date? Yes, it is. Okay. I'm not aware of them. So we're not, look, Jeff and I, 300 episodes and then taken. Not yet, but we're getting there. We're there. We're on our way. And then take into account the Patreon episodes, which again, bonus content. It's essentially twice a month. We have put forth a lot of content over the last six years. In a perfect world, it would be great to continue, but I know I don't have the strength. Uh, Jeff is much stronger than I am. I know I don't have it. And, uh, been stressing about. Still on 45, 50 pounds by now, Barry. Didn't, didn't you hike uh, uh, the Mount Everest this past weekend? It wasn't Mount Everest. It was close. The highest peak in the state of Georgia, my friend. It was gotcha. like uh, 46, 4,700 feet. Uh, I will just say my calves were feeling it the next day. 
Uh, first time I think we've used the word calves on this show. Barry, getting back to this uh, episode. <laughs> we've never said it. That's right. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so we have a an interesting uh, thing that we put on this show that I, uh, I really hope everyone likes because it's something that we've never done before. One of the things that uh, someone asked was before we finish up, are you guys going to do any more unsolved mysteries, that kind of stuff? In fact, what we've done for this particular episode, Barry, is we are going to be joined here in just a second by a, a couple of brother shippers, uh, my friends Dan Callahan and Dan Rosenberg, who are two uh, prominent defense attorneys in Broward County, Florida. We are going to be talking about the Alex, uh, Alec Murdoch case, uh, the famous case for those of you outside the country. Uh, the Alex uh, Murdoch case is literally the cause celeb everywhere in the USA right now. It is the prominent uh, local prosecutor in South Carolina and Hampton County uh, and in that area, what they call the low country of South Carolina, who was convicted within the last couple of days of murdering his wife and youngest son. And the tangled web that this family has got themselves ensnared in with multiple civil lawsuits, uh, suspected uh, involvement in murder cases, and then ultimately being convicted uh, of murdering his own child and his wife uh, in an attempt to hide a uh, rather flagrant opioid addiction and uh, the fact that he had spent millions and millions of dollars uh, to satisfy his opioid addiction. You know, Barry, as we were preparing uh, this show in this segment, I thought about uh, uh, something that was said in a, uh, I believe it was a Clint Eastwood movie that came out years ago called Absolute Power. And the line was, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yep. And in the Alec Murdoch case, uh, I think you will find that that is the case. Uh, we reference uh, during this segment uh, the fact that there is a documentary, I believe someone said, that is available on HBO. There was a recent uh, 2020 that was a two- or three-hour edition of 2020 about the case that was uh, hosted by uh, the host of ABC News, uh, David Muir. Uh, there was also a Netflix uh, movie that was done. Uh, actually, it wasn't a movie. It was a documentary, but it was in, done in three different parts. So it's three episodes, one hour each on uh, not just the murder trial itself, but what led up to the murder trial, uh, some unsolved uh, cases, uh, unsolved mysteries, if you will, for those of you that are looking for that. And Barry, this is, uh, we've never done anything like this before in, uh, in 283 episodes, and I think it's uh, going to be pretty fascinating to the listeners. I think so, and I got to tell you too. So we have obviously already recorded this segment. It is, it may be one of the best segments we have ever done. And, uh, there were some, there were some comments again with us wrapping up the podcast. There were some comments in our Facebook group. And Jeff, I have to ask if you've been listening to this podcast for the last almost six years and you're not a member of the Facebook group, we're going to say why? why. Why aren't you? Why? 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 Annie Lennox. Why? I'm not going to say. Exactly. But because. This the, the the Facebook group is that we're givers absolutely, but the Facebook group is essentially just an extension of what we're doing here. It is a great group, but there was a lot of uh, of comments and a lot of people uh, talking about their what what what's your biggest takeaway uh, from the podcast over the last six years? Uh, happy to say that you know I think people were really taken with your your cancel bet your cancer battle. I wasn't canceled. I just had yeah, cancer. Yeah, thank God. Not right? Yeah, but who knows? You, know. you were not, but uh, your cancer battle, and a lot of that had to do with uh, the fact that you, we were very transparent. You were very transparent, and 
recording, giving weekly updates on exactly what was taking place with you. And that, I think, was what resonated with people the most and should. That's absolutely should. That being said, this segment with these two fine lawyers uh, that are also in our Facebook group, this is an incredible, incredible take on what occurred in South Carolina with the Murdoch murder. Yeah. And so I tell you what, uh, before we get to what we're going to, we're also going to talk about some other stuff, uh, have our match of the week. Uh, uh, and oh, did I mention what our match of the week is, Barry? We are talking Ring of Honor. So from uh, November 8th, 2008, as Kenny Omega, Brian Danielson and Tyler Black, a.k.a. Seth Rollins, uh, are in the rings uh, of ROH in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. That's our match of the week. As far as what's going to happen after that, we'll uh, we'll talk about that when we get back. But for right now, because I want folks to uh, check out this segment, it's very fascinating. Uh, I hope it doesn't fly over the heads of uh, too many uh, of our non-legal uh, type of uh, listeners. Uh, we try to uh, scale it down a little bit so that you'll understand some of the legal terms that the attorneys use. Uh, so, uh, Lou, why don't we go to our segment now uh, as we talk about the Alec Murdoch murder case uh, and the whole family Murdoch, if you will, with our friends Dan Callahan and Dan Rosenberg. So, you know, Barry, one of the things that we've talked about here on the show before, and we're going to revisit it, is the uh, thing that's going on in South Carolina, Hampton, South Carolina, in that general area, uh, down what they call the low country. Uh, and that is the Murtaugh, uh, the Murdoch um, family murder trial. And because we've had my cousin Lydia on before to discuss it on our Patreon show, and now that the verdict has been rendered and the defendant has been sentenced, uh, and it's literally this part of the country's OJ case. It has like, uh, been on all the news stories for good Lord, almost a year, Barry. And so I thought we'd get a little bit of legal perspective from two guys who, dare I say, Lord Barron's are members of the brothership. What? Yes. In fact, we do, you know, not only that, I don't know if you two guys know this. We have two sitting judges in Broward County that are members of the group. Did you in fact know that DC Dan Callahan and Danny Rosenberg? Welcome. To breaking case paper with Bowdrin and Barry. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Always DC, how you doing, my man? It's an honor to be here myself. I, I better start correcting uh, or modifying my uh, behavior now that I know there's a couple judges on there. I, I didn't know I, <laughs> I'll ask you once we're done recording if you know who they are. So okay, we don't want to out anybody here on the show. So, uh, guys, as we begin talking about this, of course, there was a, a Netflix special that came out, I want to say, within the last two weeks, uh, a new updated show. That was, uh, I will say, released prior to the verdict being read and the sentence being handed down on the defendants. Uh, before I go to the two attorneys, Barry, you've had a chance to watch this, and it brings to mind, oh, what a tangle web we weave when first we practice to deceive Barry Tell us what you thought of the the Murdoch uh, family murder show on Netflix. Yeah, it, it was really disturbing on a lot of different levels, too. And and as you mentioned, Jeff, we have been following this case closely, partially because, look, I think your mom is from this area, right? Born hey, exactly. And, Mundo. And, and you still have family down there. And the story is riveting. And you said something at the beginning as you were uh, introducing the barristers that are joining us today. But this is kind of that East Coast version of OJ because living in Philadelphia – that's all we've been hearing. And I opened up, I think you texted me Friday morning and said guilty on all, th well, it was Wednesday. I believe he was guilty. And then they sentenced him 
on Friday and you reached out to me and, and I pulled up the New York Post immediately and I That's your go to news source, of course. Well, you know, look, I it's it's the cross between the National Enquirer, which I read you know, weekly, as well as, let's say, like the New York Times. So it is my go-to paper. But with that, there were seven to eight stories about either the trial or the family. So as something as sensationalistic as the New York Post, obviously glomming right onto it, I think the entire country has just been riveted and fascinated by this story. So I did get a chance to watch it as a three-part special that is currently on Netflix. I know that uh, I think ABC, maybe Dateline has done something, and HBO Max even has some sort of, I don't know if it's a miniseries, a docuseries, a movie. I'm not sure what it is, but even HBO's got into it because I think everybody's realizing this is a hell of a story and ratings are going to be there. So in watching the Netflix special, what I took away from it, I don't know how much new information I got, but there was some. Absolutely. The one thing that I really got was how unlikable the entire family was. And you and I were talking off air and I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but I got to admit the youngest son doesn't come off well. Uh, the things that he said, I guess allegedly, uh, had said to people while he was on the boat, a lot of his behaviors, and I, uh, it, it's a very hard, hard look at a family, and even the mother, who you don't hear a lot about, but somehow there is this implication that she may have been responsible for the housekeeper's death, uh, and then tried to cover it up. My opinion, Every single member of this family comes off looking terrible, including the brothers. And, I, you know, there's no spoiler here at this stage, including the brothers. The guy had a drone camera and was flying a drone over the property and was able to catch, I believe it was Buster and one of uh, Alex's brothers taking guns out of the house. So just unbelievable. Obviously, still some unanswered questions regarding the death of the housekeeper, as well as I believe the young man's name was Stephen Smith. And that was interesting to me, Jeff, because when we had your cousin Lydia on, I don't know, six months ago, eight months ago, whatever it's been, she was the one that, that told us that was the first we'd ever heard of it, that there possibly had been a personal or interpersonal relationship between Buster Murdoch and this young man, Stephen Smith. Uh, and, and of course, this the special definitely touched upon it. So I will say it was a riveting look at a completely dysfunctional and horrible family. Uh, at the same time, I, I couldn't even blink. My eyes were absolutely glued to the television set. So uh, what I'm going to do first uh, is I'm going to go to our friend D.C., Dan Callahan. D.C.? Uh, and then I'm going to go to Dan Rosenberg. I want to go to Dan Rosenberg last because Dan Rosenberg uh, has some sort of connection to South Carolina or just maybe he visits there a lot. So he's a little more familiar going into the whole event with the with the news story, whereas Dan Callahan as an attorney, as is Dan Rosenberg, uh, just recently watched the special and became more familiar with the story now. So, D.C., Tell us initially what your thoughts were of the Netflix special, and then we're going to fire uh, some questions at you and uh, and Danny Rosenberg uh, from a legal point of view. So what did you think of the uh, Netflix special, uh, DC? I, I, I don't know if you read my message correctly. I only got a chance to watch the ABC special. So oh, okay. Go ahead. Danny. But I, I, I have the perspective of the ABC 2020 special with the verdict. 
Okay. And that was David Muir this past Friday. And it was, it, I think, a three-hour special, if not two hours. And I thought the, the, the 2020 special went over pretty much everything. The one thing I didn't hear about was this other Stephen person who died. I'm not sure about that. And also I didn't gather any information about how potentially the wife of Alec Murdoch, Maggie, might have been involved in the death of uh, uh, the housekeeper's death. And that, that, to be honest with you, that was probably one of the most repugnant things, other than the fact that he's convicted of killing his son and his wife um, and the manner in which they were taken out. But the fact that he actually um, swindled the two sons of the housekeeper out of $4 million, and they only wound up getting $50 million for the wrongful death of the lawsuit against Alec Murdoch's uh, uh, homeowner's policy. That was just, you know, so scummy and, you know, really painted a portrait of what this guy was about. But um, as far as my, my two cents that I got out of this was, <clears throat> I think there could be great grounds for a reversal for the introduction of the evidence concerning his um, deception and defrauding of his clients because it became more of a, uh, what we call prior bad acts are typically not allowed into evidence. Um, the rule of evidence in Florida is, you know, 9404B. And we, you know, we don't allow prior bad acts to come in to prove propensity. Um, but we do allow exceptions for that to come in. For example, when you have to prove up modus operandi. And that's what the state focused on in this case by utilizing that evidence was to establish this was the motive for him to cover up what he had been doing. And, you know, basically, I think the fact that the murder happened the same day that the bookkeeper or the CFO of the law firm busted Alec Murdoch for stealing money from a client, I think the writing was on. The, it was like a perfect storm, like someone said. By the way, Barry, can I just mention, uh, I think, D.C., for the very first time in the history of this fine podcast, the words modus operandi. You know, it's, it's always always good legal terms. Uh, and we appreciate that, D.C. So, uh, Danny Rosenberg, now let me ask you, uh, uh, D.C. had told me because I initially had invited him and then he said, let's get Rosenberg with us because you have uh, some sort of connection to South Carolina or or maybe just more familiar with the case. Which one was it, buddy? Well, a little bit of both. It's funny because I went to high school and middle school in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, very randomly. Family moved there, the business that they were in. So. I have a great deal of experience living in the South, understanding the dynamics. And I think it's important to bring to this case is what really you got to wrap your head around the power this family had down there. Like if you watched any, I think Barry mentioned HBO special. I watched that too. And it did a better job of breaking down what this family's role was in that area. Cause you hear in, in the articles and some of the trials, how big they were. This family was equivalent to a mafia family down there. I mean, literally the solicitor, a lot of people don't understand what that is. To us, we know it as a prosecutor or a district attorney, some people would know, but a solicitor in the deep south down there or the south country or low country, they call it. They're the prosecutor for, and it's not one county, it's for multiple counties. So this family has had their hands on low country for years back to the well, and it's more, it's more than just, Yeah, it's more than just Alec. It's going back like, like three or four generations. Oh, great. Great, great grandfather. And then there was one, the notorious one was this guy, Buster. If you watch it, he's the great grandfather. And this guy was known for, they were scared of him. I mean, he literally make people disappear. So they were running the law for 
ever. And the fact that what's mind-boggling is they can also have a civil practice, which makes this case even more incredible that they're the leading injury, personal injury firm in that area for years upon years upon years. And it's just the complexity and, and the amount of deception and what these guys got away with and the family got away with and how much power they have. You really have to wrap your head around. And growing up in the South, you know that old Southern money comes with a lot of power. And, and this was on full display in this case. And just to speak to a little bit with, with DC Cali, I called him, had to say about the motives. It was watching the trial of DC was bizarre because it was almost like the defense wanted to be talking about this stuff as if they were trying to create, you know, bring in the financial stuff to create some kind of motive for other people to come and kill his family. And they literally would, they were talking about it, not objecting at all. I assume there was some, what we call in limiting motions, which are motions that we argue. We argue with the courts before trial when we have an idea what the other side is going to bring in. And I'm sure that was happening and there was a lot of stuff that was already agreed to be brought in, maybe stipulated by the parties and who knows, but it was fascinating. This trial was literally, I, I, I was shocked at some of the things they were talking about being able to, like, like DC says, talk about all the financials and how many people he lied to. And it's literally the definition of, you know, prior bad acts, which is not admissible, but it was in there. And it looked like the defense was all on board, which was very confusing. So let me just, uh, for those that have not had a chance to listen to our, our Patreon episode where we talked to my cousin Lydia about this case and those, you know, uh, guys, I don't know if you know this. We, we literally have listeners who are in the UK. We have listeners in Germany. Uh, and this, for those of you out there, uh, who are not in this country, this case is, uh, a small town case with big time, uh, you know, stroke and power that has kind of captivated this country. So just to give a little reader's digest version of the events and the timeline, it starts off with, uh, the young man, uh, I think, uh, Barry, was his name Stephen Smith, guys? Was that it? Do you guys remember? I, but yeah. Jeff, I, it yeah, was Stephen Smith. Yeah. Okay. So there's yeah. this young man whose name is Stephen Smith who is uh, openly gay in a very small town in South Carolina, who is mysterious, quote unquote, mysteriously killed. He's found dead in the road one day. And uh, what's what's really interesting is that his uh, death goes unsolved. And apparently there was no police investigation, which like, what the hell? And uh, so then <clears throat> after that happens, there is, uh, as I believe one of you mentioned, the mysterious death of their housekeeper, which uh, some have implicated his wife. Maggie involved in. So there's these couple of mysterious deaths. And then fast forward a couple years after that, the youngest son, Paul, goes out on a uh, on a boat with uh, five of his friends and they go to a, like a clam bake and uh, they actually go into uh, around Beaufort County. My mom, where's my mom and her family was from Beaufort County. And so the these counties are all very close to one another, very closely connected. And there is a boat accident. Uh, and the uh, very large belief, I will say it's not actually been proven because the young man was killed, but there's a very large belief that Paul was behind the wheel of the boat, uh, was responsible for the accident, uh, was a very uh, much DUI or BUI, as they say sometimes in Florida, uh, boating under the influence. And it resulted in the death of one of the girls that was on the boat. Uh, the girl's body wasn't found, I, I want to say, like almost for like a couple of weeks. Um yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, before it finally came up. And what was crazy about that particular incident was his father and grandfather show up at the uh, at the hospital 
and is basically telling all the kids on the boat, yeah, we're going to take care of this. You don't need to talk to the cops. <laughs> and, like, apparently all the cops that were on the scene were guys that knew the family. You know, as as the two guy, uh, two attorneys have said, this family had lots of stroke in this area. And somehow nobody – they didn't take the kid uh, down to be booked uh, and get arrested. He wasn't, you know, even – uh, photographed until much later. It was just a crazy case. So while all this is going on, and the kids, by the way, uh, not being held in jail for the death of this girl, he's out uh, on bond. His, his photo was taken. Sorry to interrupt. His photo, his booking photo was taken in the hallway of the hospital. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why book him into the jail? You know? Right. So anyway, so all this is going on. So now you have these mysterious deaths and these, you know, unfortunate accidents that result in the loss of a girl's life. Uh, And there's just so and oh, my God, that uh, just absolutely gut wrenching video of uh, the girl that was killed, her boyfriend, who is uh, sitting by. He said he points to the the, to young Paul Murdoch and he says, do you guys know who, who that guy's father is? He says, yeah, he goes, that's Paul Murdoch. Do you know that name? And the, and the cop says, oh, yes, I've heard of that name. He goes, yeah. And then apparently Paul, uh, based on what is said on the video, is either smiling or laughing or about something. And he says, hey, man, you know, my girl is dead and you're over there smiling and laughing, you know, and it's just a horrific set of events. Now, that leads us into the incident that, uh, you know, uh, is what really turned this whole thing around. And that is the fact that Young Paul, who was the behind the wheel of the boat that resulted in the girl's death, he's killed and his mother is killed on the family estate. Uh, and this family, this is literally not, not a, uh, a yard. This is an estate that covers, you know, many, many, many acres, a huge, it's where you call it a compound. How about that? Uh, it's, uh, you know, just a huge estate. The, the son is killed with, uh, I think two shots from a shotgun to the head. The mother is taken down with an assault rifle. Uh, just absolutely brutal. And uh, Alec Murdoch, the attorney, had basically set up, uh, I'm just going to say allegedly, had set up his alibi where it's like, oh, no, no, I'm off visiting my parents uh, who are uh, both uh, very in- infirmed. I believe one might even have uh, some form of dementia. And so he puts that on a recording to his wife. But then later, a video comes out during trial that shows him literally at the scene minutes before the alleged time of death. So, uh, gentlemen, would you say I've kind of Reader's Digest uh, way uh, kind of caught us up to date? Danny, do you want to add anything? Because I'd like to add something. Well, go ahead. Go ahead, Callie. I'll go after you. Well, I think the the one thing that really got to me, which there's two other things, because I, I talked about the perfect storm. The kid had been criminally charged at this point for the death of the girl from the boating accident. And simultaneous to that, the law firm finds out at least literally like at I guess it was at four o'clock in the afternoon. Alec Murdoch is confronted by the CFO. And this is the day of the killing of the wife and the son. And she accuses him of stealing money. While they're having that conversation, Alec Murdoch gets a phone call from a family that his father is in the hospital. And that conversation is terminated with the CFO because somehow that's directed towards the father. Something happened with the father. And um, as far as when the phone call uh, to go to the mother's house, he does go to the mother's house, but 
He says he went to the dog kennels, and I think you need to focus on the dog kennels, Jeffrey, because that's the biggest superstar is the dog, the dog named Crash. And I'll let Danny go from there. Just remember the dog named Crash. I that's thought the dog's the- name was Bubba. It was Bubba or Buster or Bubba. Or, um, I don't remember which one it was, but he makes a good point because that becomes the literally the moment in the trial that turned everything on its head. And, uh, you know, because it literally placed him at the scene and something happened where they didn't receive defense wasn't aware of this video or received it, but maybe must not have reviewed it because literally in the middle of the trial where they had begun with the he wasn't there, they switched defenses and came up with this other story and put Murdoch on the stand to testify about what really happened and how he was there, but he went to the house and literally just swapped his defense in the middle of trial, and that's never good. I remember uh, Larry Schweiger, another attorney, and I were in trial, and we had a trial going, and it was not going well. And at some point, we had to put our case on. And, you know, in our opening, we talked about one thing, but then when our case came on, so much came out, we had to kind of swap a little bit. And uh, I remember the closing, the, <laughs> the closing, the prosecutor gets up and just starts swimming with her arm. She goes, they're swimming upstream, ladies and gentlemen. They're swimming upstream because they got nothing, and they're switching on you. It's exactly what happened in this trial. So, so let me let me just uh, – because uh, I don't want to go too far over the heads of our listeners sure. here who are not familiar with the uh, the court process uh, and things like that. So uh, I actually reached out to my, my cousin Lydia and said, do you have any questions that, you know, uh, that as you watch this show, as you follow the trial there locally, that you would have for an attorney that maybe you want to ask? And I think, you know, some of our listeners might find this interesting. Guys – her first question is, and it's something that other people have asked also, tell us the benefits and the detriments to having a defendant who's charged with a crime, whether it's this crime or, or any crime, having your defendant testify. Danny was just talking about that. But okay. um, I, I'll, I'll just jump in and say this is exactly why two things they screwed up in this case, the defense, or maybe maybe the arrogance of the defendant because he told his attorneys what to do. One, he demanded a speedy trial, and two, he didn't know what was on that phone. They didn't do a thorough investigation from the defense standpoint, and that's how they found out about that video that put him there at 8.45, just minutes before the phones go silent and uh, the time of death is pretty much established. And when he lied three separate times about saying he wasn't there, that he was either at home sleeping and went to his mother's house and then went to the kennels and discovered the dead bodies. So he lied three separate times. And if he would have insisted on not testifying or even not even giving a statement, I think you go all the way back to the beginning of the investigation is why did he give a statement to law enforcement? He could have invoked his right to remain silent back then. But he didn't. He was arrogant. He gave three statements, um, albeit they were with counsel. The two first statements that were made were in a vehicle with his attorney and the lead detective. And the last one was made where he was uh, accused of being a suspect. But there's two bad things that occurred in this incident when your client testifies is not knowing the complete hand of the poker player you're playing. That's why we have discovery depositions. That's why you do a thorough investigation. And two, you do a demand for speedy trial. It's a double-edged sword, and sometimes you're going to fall on the wrong side. 
So Dan right. Rosenberg. And, and just me, to add on. Sure, go ahead. Real quick, just, just to kind of simplify it a little bit more. The reason to answer her question to the reason why we don't like to put people on the stand is because it, the burden, the one advantage we have in these trials as defense is that the entire burden of persuasion. What does that mean? It's up to the state to prove every little element of a crime. So as defense attorneys, we, we don't really technically have to do anything. I mean, we have to defend, but they're putting it up. So if you're having surgery and you're standing next to a surgeon having surgery and the surgeon's looking through the surgery and he sees everything's going well and you say, do we need more? And the surgeon says, no, we're good. You're not going to argue with the surgeon. So if the state's putting up a case and as a defense attorney, we think, you know what? We don't think they've proved it. They haven't proved it. Why would you want to be on the stand when the defendant says, I want to testify? It can only go badly because it's not necessary. A, B, jurors go with their gut. It depends on the personality. If a guy gets up there and they're reading a guy or a girl and they get a read for the person or they get a gut feeling for the person or the person screws things up, it, it's only going to sink the person. You only put the defendant on the stand, in my experience, when there's a certain element that has to come out from that person's mouth, like self-defense or things that we need the person to testify to. In my experience, it's always gone wrong. And uh, But like, like Callie said, sometimes it gets out of your hand because the defendant has the right to testify and he can't trump you on that decision. And when you're going with a defendant who uh, obviously is a man with this kind of stroke and power, he right. obviously, as, as DC said, kind of overruled his own defense counsel. And it's like, no, no, I want to go on the stand because I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be able to convince these people. Obviously, he did not. And, you know, if you are presented to a jury and they think, wow, this guy, uh, he's, he's, you know, he's cutting his own throat here. And in a lot of ways, that's what's happened here, guys. Right. Yeah, All right. I think, yeah. Go ahead, Barry. No, that wasn't me. No, oh, okay. So I'll, the next question, the next question, my uh, my cousin Lydia wanted me to ask you, and and since you guys have had a chance to sort of look at what's been happening in the past, there was also the story that I didn't touch upon in the Reader's Digest version that involved uh, cousin Eddie, cousin Eddie, who was the guy who apparently was his dealer <laughs> who got him his pain meds uh, and his opioids. And then there was the incident on the country road where uh, he claimed, uh, where Alec claimed that someone had tried to kill him, and then they came to find out that it was cousin Eddie who had been put up to it uh, in a, a form of assisted suicide. That Alec suddenly, at the last moment, decided, nah, I don't think I want to go with this. So her question was, why do you think that cousin Eddie wasn't put on the stand by the prosecution, or was it a case of they thought they already had it? Either one of you. Well, that's a good question. Um, I think that that's probably one of the things that it's hard to make to give answers to this if we don't know what the preliminary arguments were. So, again, explaining like before you go into trial, if you know certain things you can file as defense or the state, you could file a motion with the court asking the court to say, hey, this stuff should not get in. Let's decide this right now so that we're not popping up, objecting and, and, and interfering with the trial the entire time. My assumption is that that probably was argued by the defense to not be in um, at to show, because it would show obviously consciousness of guilt. It would show, you know, scheming, planning. I mean, that's crazy. And that, I mean, this the story went even crazier. This guy, he got shot in the head. He actually took a bullet to the head, didn't he? Yeah. You guys know? I think he yes, was yes, shot it in the head. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that it must have been that. Now, Callie, do you have any opinion on that? Yeah. I, well, I think why would they need to? Because everything that they would have need to have gotten from this person, Murdoch confessed to. Because um, if you recall, Ms. Mr. Murdoch was out on bond and surrendered himself for uh, detox and was in drug treatment when he was arrested for the first degree murder warrants. And while he was in detox, that was after um, he had this incident on the roadway. And uh, Eddie Smith said that he didn't shoot him, but he did discharge the firearm and he never even shot him. He didn't even have a gunshot wound to his head. But Murdoch was saying that, yeah, it hit him in his head and he called 911. And the law firm came out later and saying that, no, he was fired that particular day, they think, because he was confronted again with the, the, the thievery and, and the defrauding of the clients and of the law firm. And we're talking millions of dollars this guy was taking. And, you know, as far as having to present that testimony and to cut a deal from someone who's going to feed into the theory of how Murdoch delves down into the, the deep, dark uh, drug dealing uh, people in South Carolina. And maybe that would have fed into his defense that, yeah, maybe there's someone else that wanted to kill his wife and his son. There's two separate weapons that were utilized. Um, you know, it, it, it certainly makes sense that there was reasonable doubt. And a, a colleague, friend of ours, Brian Silber, he was on CNN and he made the same com comment. He thought it would have been a not guilty verdict because he thought that there was sufficient reasonable doubt that there was an alternative theory of who could have killed them. So, right. I think it clouded the waters. I mean, it did cloud the waters a lot for the state. And I think they already had that as a concern because the defense, we're looking for a sliver of doubt. And I know that the state says that's not a sliver. It's reasonable, but you give defense any argument to, to, to go with reasonable doubt. And so the more you cloud up the waters and you muddy up the waters, the more opportunity there is for a not guilty verdict. So yeah. I, I tend to agree with Callie on that as well. I, I just go back to the first question about this guy testifying. He never should have testified after his defense. They, they were shot in the foot. They looked like deer in the headlights when that video came out. And if you go back and you look at the, te the, uh, the video, I, I think I agree with you, Danny. I don't even think the prosecutor knew his voice was on that video. Because when they were doing that direct examination of the friend of, of Paul, because he wanted to see a video of his dog that was being taken care of in the kennel, that's when you hear Murdoch in the background, you hear his voice distinctly. And that's when everybody was like, oh shit, you know. And you could see the face of the defense counsel. You could see the prosecutor saying, wait a second, whose voice was that? And the friend of the son says, that was Mr. Alec. Yeah, without know? that, without that, you have so much reasonable doubt. Not I mean, think about the think about the financials. Like, how many people did this guy steal hundreds of thousands of dollars from? There's so much motive for so many people here. And that was a hook, line, and stinker. They had rebuttal because he testified, and they got to bring the CFO back on the stand and pummel his character again. Exactly. And called him so, a bullshit artist. You know, right. uh, let, let, let me let me ask you guys a question here that uh, immediately struck me. Uh, and uh, Dan Rosenberg, just because you're more familiar with that part of South Carolina, you know, so the main office is in Hampton, uh, Hampton County. Next to Hampton County, you have Beaufort County. And then you had where the trial took place, which was Colleton County. 
the first thing that struck me was, did no one make a motion for a change of venue here to have the trial take place in a different part of the state? And maybe it wouldn't have mattered because this was such a high profile case. But uh, it did was that motion, uh, as far as we know, not made? I think it was. I actually heard about it on one of these specials or maybe some of the testimony. The testimony of the actual attorney for the Mallory, the beach girl, the girl that died in the boat, the the, the injury attorney for for that for that person was was uh, questioned about. And at least for his case, he was trying to change venue and then he went back for some reason. They strategically placed where they they thought about where they were going. And they thought that it would be in their best interest to be in this place. I, I don't know why, but I definitely know that it was talked about. And I don't know whether motions were filed on the criminal case, but I know that it was in the minds of all of them. And they probably, from what I saw and understood from a lot of these specials, and I think I heard somebody talk about this as well, the locals in this county kind of wanted to see these people go down. I mean, these guys, the locals in this county lived in fear of this family for a very long time. If you really do an in-depth look at all these different specials, you'll get random interviews from like, you know, some of the local residents where they're blacked out, there's shadows, you don't really see their face because they're so scared of them. So I think that as long as the jury was in the hands of the jury, that they thought they felt comfortable with the locals. I just still can't get, get beyond the, the explanation that he gave why he lied to the police or why he didn't tell them he was at the kennels when he was basically pinned there because of the video at around 8.45. And his explanation was more prior bad acts, which was, oh, I'm an opioid addict, and I was high on pills that day, and I was taking so many pills a day. And that's what, you know, you do when you're an opioid. So you're going to utilize that as a reason why you you lied to the detectives about being at the location where your your wife and your, your son were murdered? Yeah. So the big he thing he I nodded was, off. He said he nodded off on the couch and yeah. didn't hear an AR-15 rifle. And I kind of yards from the house. I commiserated with him because you know that's about the time I nod off at home, and he was he was fat. <laughs> he was about my size. If you look at the pictures, he lost a good hundred pounds. Yeah, he yeah, she's quite a bit bologna sandwiches. That's bologna sandwiches. It's a bologna sandwich diet. The jail diet. I think we should have a, a, a TV show. Maybe get some people in the penitentiary, see how much weight they can lose. Oh my goodness. So, gents, question for you. And again, this a lot of my knowledge comes from reading the New York Post every day. Take that for what you will. But uh, <laughs> they had mentioned, I guess, in one of the latest articles that uh, he, Alex Murdoch, is facing a potential seven hundred years in charges that I guess are all related to uh, all of his unscrupulous financial dealings. So how does that work? Considering that he's got two life sentences, would they still be bringing up all these other charges and just putting that on top of the life sentences? Absolutely. At this point, they're just going to keep kicking this man when he's down. They have to bring justice, some form of justice to these, these victims. There's so many victims. So, yeah, they definitely are. I, I would not be surprised. They're just going to piggyback and piggyback and piggyback and keep. It, the answer to your question doesn't make any difference because the guy will never see the light of day. Right. But some form of restitution maybe to the estate, if there is an estate. I mean, they're going to break this family. And yeah. rightfully so. I think that was the, the, the motive for, for him getting 
murdered uh, by his friend by having Cousin Eddie off him was to get the insurance to his other son because the family was broke. And uh, that was revealed during the uh, lawsuit um, by the uh, girl that died on the boat. So let me yeah, ask he claimed you he claimed. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. Please, Danny. Well, no, he claimed he claimed that he. So this this lawyer that sued on behalf of the girl, the boat victim's family, he was a real tough lawyer over there. And, and he was friends with this guy, too. They all knew each other. They're part of a very small bar over there. And uh, he was actually very tried to confront him and like intimidate him because they were expecting he was expecting this guy to just sue for the insurance money. But this guy went after Alex Murdoch's pockets personally. And he came out saying, I'm broke. And this guy just started serving subpoenas on all the bank records, flushing all the money. So there's a lot of people going for blood on this family. And I anticipate it'll continue to be so for the next forgot, five years. I, I forgot to mention the court hearing for the, uh, uh, he was being compelled to reveal his bank records in the lawsuit was the following right. week after the murder. So it was like a perfect right. storm. Like they said, everything was coming down on him at the same time. And, you know, but I, I just want to I just want to mention a, a couple of people, the attorney, the civil attorney that went after him. You have to give tons of respect for that guy. Also, the local newspaper editor there in Hampton County, because, yeah. as you said, the amount of stroke that this family had in that county and for this guy to be able to you know, keep going after this family and these stories. It shows an incredible amount of bravery. It's crazy to think, you know, in 2022 and 2023 that, you know, a, a newspaper man is, is still being, you know, pressured by a prominent local family or that another attorney is facing, you know, reprisals for going after this family. Uh, and the fact that they've got all this stroke with the local PD, not just their hometown, you know, police department. But the fact, because they're so well known uh, in the surrounding counties that they can literally go to a crime scene for Listen, God's sake. This is just like Dallas. I mean, you couldn't <laughs> come up with this. You know? It's the Ewing family. Exactly. That's that's yeah, this- not a really a bad comparison. So one of the things I, I did want to ask you was uh, the fact that uh, his son, that uh, is the only remaining child in the family, that you know, uh, with Paul being killed. Uh, and that's the young uh, son that is uh, they call him Buster. Uh, and as we alluded to in the very beginning here, there was uh, some people that were alleging perhaps that there had been a relationship between he and the boy, Stephen. So now, you know, you were talking about the family kicking him while they're down. And I'm just asking you hypothetically, totally to guess, do you think there is a strong likelihood that the uh, prosecutor's office or uh, the investigating office, they call them SLED in South Carolina, uh, the law enforcement division, that they're going to go after the son Buster potentially for the death of this Stephen Smith uh, boy. I would think so. And I'll tell you why. The amount of eyes on this situation I mean, this isn't, I know you were saying it's like the East Coast is very, I think the whole country's watching, you know? So I think potentially yes, because, you know, you still have a family of, you have the family of a victim there that has gotten no closure, no justice. So if it's possible, yes, I think you'll get a fresh new set of eyes. I don't know whether they have enough to prosecute because from what I saw, you know, it was some innuendo and things that maybe it's not enough, but maybe with a new set of eyes looking at them and their influence being, you know, scrutinized, maybe, maybe so. 
What do you think, DC? I think they're going to go through his cell phone records. They're going to go through the drug trafficking unit's going to look at his cell phone to see who he's been buying from. I think all of his friends who have been texting him back and forth with one another, everybody's in trouble. Um, like Dan says, there's so many eyes on this right now, and you not only have local law enforcement, but the South Carolina, the version of Florida Department of Law Enforcement is SLED. You know, that's a, a higher up uh, agency. So you've got, like, like Danny said, a lot of, a lot of eyes, a lot of resources, different agencies looking into this, but certainly in a homicide case, they're definitely going to be looking through everything. And, um, I and think there's no statute of limitations, of course, on a homicide case. Also, the, the homicide, who, who knows if Alec Murdoch isn't going to be charged with some type of conspiracy to commit murder or, or first degree murder about the housekeeper. Because again, if you look and see what he did in that, that lawsuit for the, the children, yeah. he, he, he claimed that, oh, you're going to get a $50,000 check. And then he cashed in a $4 million policy claim without even telling them. I mean, that's unbelievable. Yeah. So, that so I would put homicide yeah, beyond that investigation where he admits to doing that. What 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 else could he have been uh, responsible for? Her death, falling down and breaking her head open? So who knows? Maybe that's why he killed his wife. So let me ask you, now that he's uh, in prison and he's been assigned to a prison and I know they have, you know, all the things where they need to process them and they do all the interviewing them and, and all that. Uh, I, I don't know if I should say I hate to hear this or not, but based on what he's alleged to have done. But uh, how safe do you think Alec, uh, Alec Murray is in prison? Because I'm guessing there's more than one guy in there that has relatives that this guy screwed out of lots of money. Well, I think he's going to be held for the pending cases. Once those are resolved, wherever he goes, maybe he might be in some type of, you know, selective uh, or like protective custody uh, kind of thing. Yeah, like Nicholas Cruz. Yeah. Hate to bring up that kid, but have to. you know, you can't even look up certain people's names in the Department of Corrections. I was looking up uh, the um, Whitey uh, Whitey Bolger case, and I was looking to see where. Jim Connolly was in prison because he was convicted in Dade County for murder. The, the, That's the Miami federal, for our listeners. Yeah, the federal handler, he was convicted yeah, in Miami-Dade County, and I was trying to look and see where he was uh, serving his prison sentence. That's another great story about how he almost walked on that case, and then the Supreme Court ordered him. that He was literally like, anyway, well, let's focus on this case. Yeah, stay on track, Callahan. He's going to have to be protected. This guy was a solicitor, and his grandfather was a solicitor, and his great-grandfather was a solicitor, and his great-great... How many guys are in prison because of the Murdoch? So they definitely, definitely going to have to protect him in some way. But, yeah, maybe somebody might want to put... Give him some justice inside the jail, somebody who he wronged. You never know. Gotcha. What what was the reasoning that this wasn't a death penalty case? That's a great question. That's speedy what I Speedy trial. The speedy trial. The speedy trial. Right. Maybe. Uh, I, I mean, maybe the state attorney or the, the prosecutor, um, uh, you know, or maybe they were thinking it was a domestic violence, like heat of passion, some type of uh, murder, which is less aggravating than, you know, the manipulation and, and conspiring to kill your family because you're trying to cover up defrauding your, your clients and your law firm. 
but um, maybe the state attorney didn't feel that it was appropriate under those circumstances. Um, but well, you know. let, let me just ask you, as two defense attorneys, uh, is it easier, do you think, for a juror to consider, you know, like a, a verdict in a case like this when you know uh, the worst this guy's going to get is life in prison, he's never going to get out, as opposed to, you know, whether people want to think about this or not, sitting in not only in judgment of someone, but sitting in judgment of someone that you're basically going to be asked to be given the death penalty, that that's quite a lot to put on the average person. Do you think that played a part in it? Yeah, I, I think that it would always play a part in it, um, but certainly in a small, tight-knit community. Um, and, uh, I mean, look at the – this guy wasn't arrested, um, and perhaps he should have been arrested and. And he was, I think, given bond when they were trying to seek for him to be remanded into custody. Um, so obviously, you know, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, and if, if the circumstances were different and the families were different and the ge- geographical location were different, I don't want to come out and say it, so I won't. But, you know, I would see a death penalty petitioned on in any other jurisdiction, in any other county in the United States of this America where the death penalty can be imposed. So for for this not to be a death penalty case, there had to be some undue influence involved and reckoning with the fact that, you know, his family was basically the solicitor for the past hundred years since basically uh, I think the sentencing judge even indicated it, that this guy himself used to put people to death with less evidence. and less- Yes, I thought that was an excellent point, which I tell you what, that leads me into – my last just, question that I have for you guys. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Dane. Rosenberg, real quick, just to touch up, I wanted to add something on that. I've been thinking about that the entire time, and I think that it was more of a political play because the judge also managed to, mentioned in sentencing that, you know, that you've put the entire South Carolina justice system on trial. That's what this case has done. I mean, you're, the, the look that the, the county system down there has is horrific. So I think that from a political standpoint, they're thinking, well, what happens if we convict him? And then in the death phase, he gets life anyway, and it's going to look like he won. Like in the Parkland trial down here, everybody was outraged when the guy's going to prison for the rest of his life. But because they didn't get the death sentence, it was deemed to be some sort of a failure by the government. So I think they didn't want to take a chance at that and, and have any, any other bad visual or optic come out of this. And I think that's probably why they just stuck with the life in prison. Okay, so uh, first of all, I want to say both to you guys, uh, we certainly appreciate you uh, coming on and discussing this case and this issue with us. Last question I have for the both of you uh, that really stuck out to me, uh, and uh, as someone who spent 33 and a half years in the Broward County, Fort Lauderdale court system, and had got to sit in with a lot of uh, judges, some that I thought were excellent, some that eh, maybe weren't, but tell me what your impressions were, uh, not only from what you saw on, uh, you know, maybe during the sentencing, uh, during the, the trial phase. Tell us your thoughts on the job that you felt Judge Clifton Newman did. D.C., you first. Well, I, I thought he was stoic at every point that he had an opportunity to, to, you know, when it was his lead role. It's sort of like a theater production. So when his lines were ready and his part was ready, he was on point. The... I, I told Danny when I first spoke to him about this, um, how I thought it, I felt like I was watching a trial, like a, uh, a Salvador Dali painting trial, because I couldn't believe the shit that was going on in this courtroom. 
and I was commenting upon, you know, the unlimited back and forth between the defendant and the state attorney, um, you know, the theatrics of defense counsel during closing arguments, crying. Um, I'm like, what is going on here? And really, to be honest with you, to a certain extent, and that's why I think we might see another trial, um, is the 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 extent of bringing in the character witnesses to show that he was stealing from the from the firm and how they focused on that to try to show that this guy is such a piece of shit that he probably did it in this case. And that's not what that evidence was for. And and I think that maybe an appellate court might give him because there was a motion in limine regarding that, even though defense took took hold of it. Um, we'll see. Maybe there might be a, a second trial. Uh, DC, before we go on and I throw it to Dan Rosenberg, just for the people that aren't familiar with that term, uh, a motion in limine, just once again, explain to our listeners what exactly that means. Danny? Oh, uh, sorry. So a motion in limine is, is basically before you start trial, there are certain matters that the defense and state are aware are going to become a problem. Like, you know, they're going to try to talk about this. We know they can't talk about this. We're going to file a motion. We're, we're going to let the court know, hey, they're planning to talk about this. It's improper. This is why. Please rule on this before we start, as opposed to having us object every time when they try to do it and having these sidebar discussions and excusing the jurors. Let's get this out in front and let's argue about it now. So we call those in limiting motions. And so we were saying some of these things were most likely argued before. And if you're just kind of tuning into the trial, you wouldn't be, you know, things that look improper. There might have been a bloodbath battle about it before the start. So that's what we mean by limiting motion. And to add on to what uh, Callie was saying about the judge, he had the appearance of being in control. So if you were a layman or a non-lawyer and you're watching it, he, he was respectful. He was calm. You know, he was, you know, he stayed in control for the most part. But the, like, like Callie was saying, the theatrics and the things that were being allowed to come in as lawyers watching it, we thought it was out of control. And that was the consensus I got from most lawyers. But again, reminding you that we don't know what the in limine motions were. But, okay. You know, I thought that he was sentencing. I think he did well in the sentencing and his, the way he kind of berated him in a calm voice. I thought that was pretty good. Sure. And, you know, one of the things, uh, just before we go, I had a couple more points I just wanted to make that I thought was very interesting was when the judge, uh, apparently talked about that before they could convene the trial and have the prospective jurors that would be considering this case come into the courthouse, he had to remove a portrait of Alec Burdock's <laughs> grandfather from the entranceway to the courthouse. That's how influential this family was in this county. That's absolutely crazy. So next, uh, and, and maybe finally, tell me what your thoughts were, uh, you know, because one of the things that really struck me was when he was sentencing Alec, and Alec is standing there in front of him, and, and I think you've put it very eloquently, he very calmly berated him. <laughs> you know, it wasn't <laughs> like screaming at him, but he was doing it where he was basically verbally eviscerating him, but doing it in such a calm manner. But when he told him, I can't even imagine what it must be like when you lie down in your bed at night and have to listen to their voices. And then Alec said, not just at night, every day and every night. It was like an admission. Yeah, almost. exactly. And that was, and I was yeah. sitting there. I go, wait a minute. Where were his lawyers saying, "Shut the hell up"? What are you doing? I, I mean, was I off base on that? 
No, I no. thought the same thing. I thought the same thing, but then I was like, well, maybe he's that Alex guy. He's so calculated. I think he just created scenarios in his mind and just doubled down. I think maybe in his head he was thinking, well, I miss them. That's why I see them every night. Where it sounded like, oh uh, yeah, I killed them, and I'm gonna see them every night for the rest of my night. I thought that was, I thought that was in, just bananas. The whole that was bananas. I agree with you, Jeff. It was nuts. Yeah. So uh, if let's just say uh, Alec Murdoch calls up uh, uh, DC Dan Callahan and Danny Rosenberg and says, guys, I need you to come up to South Kakalaki, the Palmetto State, and represent me on my appeal. Is the first thing you're gonna tell the guy, okay, you're gonna just shut up and listen to us? <laughs> The, uh, the first no, thing I'm going to say is I want I want 150 million dollars. The <laughs> second thing I'm going to say <laughs> is to shut the hell up and listen to us. <laughs> DC, what about you, my man? Uh, you know, I, I I just love the way that when he testified, he sounded just like old ball coach from University of Florida. He, has, <laughs> he was all shucks. I mean, he he was a bullshit artist, and he had this great accent. And he just sounded like kind of like a thing between Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs and Dennis Quaid in whatever that football movie he was when he played for LSU, the Great Ghost or something. Well, listen, guys. Hey, uh, I can't thank you enough on behalf of Barry, myself, and Lou uh, for joining us. Uh, Barry, what do you think? Official legal representatives uh, for the Brothership? What do you think? Jeff, I, I go back to, I think, maybe the first couple of months we were doing this podcast, and someone – That was 1978, wasn't it? It was 78. You and I were about 30 at that time, right? But there was somebody that said – Breaking kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry is the most highbrow of all of the pro wrestling podcasts. I think this appearance by the Double Dans has kind of <laughs> solidified that, right? It was, I, I think it was, uh, uh, what do you call, um, Travis Scott Bowden that said that. Oh, was it? Okay. There yeah, you go. Exactly. That's us. The, uh, the art house, uh, indie That's uh, project right. of the Arcadian Network. Guys, thank you so much. We do appreciate your time, uh, providing your insight into this case. I cannot recommend to the uh, the listeners of this show the Netflix special enough uh, just to delve into this case and all the – this is like uh, an octopus with so many tentacles uh, stretching out, not just uh, in South Carolina and in the local area, but just all throughout the country. And I hope you'll check it out. Uh, I think, uh, as Dan Callahan mentioned, there's also an HBO special about this, and it was on ABC. There's all kind of content out there available for you to check out. And I hope that you and the group and the listeners will uh, avail yourself a chance. Uh, you know, I had someone uh, after we talked about Barry, the uh, the end of the show, the end of our regular show, say, uh, are you guys going to do any more true crime stuff or, or you know, unsolved That's mysteries? Right. Uh, right there. You've got your content, folks. Thanks, guys. We appreciate it so much. Rock on, guys. Thank Have you, gentlemen. Fun. Pleasure to be on. Thank you. It's an honor. Very really enjoyed talking about that. Why don't we, uh, why don't we now skip over just for those of you that have been waiting with bated breath for this, Barry. Let's talk about our match of the week. Very time for our match of the week. And because we are nothing, if not, we are, you know what? Before I say a word, this past weekend, Jeff, which you may know, I spent, uh, three days in New York City. We were, I w- we were watching television. We're in bed, li- the lovely Linda and myself, and we're talking. Wait, wait, wait. No, no separate beds? I mean, you guys are not married, Barry. No, no, we're in the same bed. She looks at me and she goes, you know I'm a giver, don't you? <laughs> and smile. By the way, Linda listening to the podcast on a weekly basis. So also saying to me now, the 
the uh, which should be a T-shirt, server or manager. <laughs> well, you you we, tell us, sir. Hell we, thank you very we much. We walked we walked by a whole bunch of restaurants, and I'd be like, I worked there, and she looked at me and goes, server or manager. So right yes. now, for Spiker just got an erection. But anyway, <laughs> so we are givers, is what uh, Barry was going to say. And yes, because we are givers. This week, we are going to the rings of Ring of Honor, Barry. Yes, we are talking November eighth. 2008, good Lord, Barry, it's this century. Wow. And I thought this was a pretty interesting – anybody loves a good three-way, Barry. I think you can agree with uh, – Oh, you know, sure. Maybe you can check with Linda on that a little bit later. Right. But we are talking Brian Danielson. We are talking Tyler Black. Uh, Tyler Black, that's Seth Rollins, and a young, poodled-haired young boy named Kenny Omega. Now, immediately, I know there's going to be a portion of our audience – that's going to go, oh, fucking Kenny Omega, man, fucking Kenny Omega. But this is like young boy Kenny Omega showing up in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, in the rings of Ring of Honor. We're going to talk about that. Barry, first of all, what did you think of this match? His home country, too, Kenny Omega. So I liked the match. I don't think I loved it, and I'm going to tell you why. And look, you're right. I think at this stage, Brian Danielson, and Brian Danielson went on a run, one of the best wrestlers in the entire world at this stage. Kenny Omega, a young boy here. He's a young guy, but I liked him. He, he comes across, he's a heel for the most part, but comes across as a guy who is uh, a solid worker. Hadn't, hadn't morphed into the Kenny Omega that a lot of people know now. And obviously a lot of the, at least internet wrestling crowd really hates. Wasn't that guy yet. And Tyler Black. Seth Rollins, this is probably, a, I forget what year he showed up in uh, the WWE, but it's probably within a couple of years he was in NXT. And I got to tell you, he looks great in this match. Everybody looks good. But you know what I didn't like about this match, Jeff? What's that? This, it was a needless three-way, in my opinion. There was no reason. I was actually more excited to the fact to maybe see Omega versus Danielson or Tyler Black versus Omega, whatever it was. I don't think based off this match, that they needed to have all three guys. Now, that being said, I'm sure this played into a storyline where it converged where you needed to have all three guys. But the work was solid. I, Daniel Bryan just doing an incredible job. Loved or Bryan Danielson, as he or was. Bryan. And I do this all the time. I uh, I still do this all the time. But he, uh, he did an incredible job. And I liked the dynamics of the match. For some reason, I just don't think – Three ways are a weird thing in professional wrestling. And a lot of times when they're doing a three-way dance, it, it's a, it's done big and it turns into a spot fest. That's, you can't have, at least in my opinion, you really can't have this, this solid match with back and forth telling a story. It, it always seems to turn into a spot fest where guys, and there were moments here where I was getting that vibe with it. The work is solid. I, there's no way I can complain about the work. Here's the question I want to pose to you. Kenny Omega obviously uh, hit stratospheric heights in, in changing his gimmick a little bit, working in Japan for years. He was the top gaijin over there for years. What if Kenny Omega had retained, as you said, poodle-haired, which is kind of cute in its own way, but if Kenny Omega had retained 
this version of Kenny Omega, obviously more seasoning, but less about pulling the trigger, as Jim Cornette likes to say, the jazz hands, the two-toned hair, which I really can't stand. Uh, what if Kenny Omega had retained what he was doing here, but just got more solid in the ring? Do you think fans would have resonated with him a little bit deeper in this country? Um, dare I say there is a, not all, but a segment of the fan base that has been in fact influenced, in my opinion, by the opinion of others. And, you know, when you are taught something, uh, and let's face it, you're, you're going to school when you're listening to a certain Arcadian show because he is a incredible figure when it comes to wrestling history. And, you know, has he influenced some of his listeners to hate Kenny Omega? Yes. Has he influenced them all? Of course not. Yeah, there are some people that sit there and say, well, you know, I respect his opinion. I respect his beliefs, but I like Kenny Omega. And there are, but there are some people that are going to say, well, uh, Jimmy doesn't like him. So I don't think I should like him too. I, you know, I, as incredibly narrow minded as that sounded, I, I really think that that's the case to some people. Okay. Uh, I've always said, by the way, that, you know, you talk about the poodle hair to me, I think I mentioned this many, many episodes ago, two-tone Kenny Omega, that hairdo reminds me of the toe cutter from Mad Max. Remember the right. toe cutter? I you sure know, did. He had the exact same hairdo. And so every time I see Kenny with that two-toned hair, I think of the toe cutter from Mad Max. If you haven't seen the movie, go ahead and check it out. I'm sure it's available on one of your local streaming services. Um, but I, you know, I think in a lot of ways, he became refined working all that time in New Japan. And in some ways, it took him down a road where he, you know, he started doing, uh, let's just say for the sake of the jazz hands. You know, now that being said, did you catch the one spot? And I wanted to get your opinion on it where I think he throws Danielson into the ropes and as Danielson, uh, like gives him a shoulder and goes and springs to the other ropes to come back over and Omega holds up his hand and, you know, gives him the hold on one second, you know, yeah. and then he hits him. So, so what'd you think of that move as a wrestling traditionalist? What did you think of that move? I didn't have a problem with it. It doesn't, that, that wasn't my issue whatsoever. Yeah, okay. I didn't have a problem. Now, did you, did it bother you? No, I, you know, I, I just thought it was, uh, you know, it was something that certainly, uh, I could see someone who's a longtime fan, uh, objecting to it. Somebody who's not a Kenny Omega fan saying, well, see right there, you know, uh, that, that's a, that's something I have a problem with, you know, because, you know, Dory Funk Jr. and Jack Briscoe didn't do that. Uh, well, so can, I, can I, can I go, you know, no, no, so, go ahead. And every time I hear arguments like that, too, look, they do exist. You mean by me or other people? Other people. <laughs> and it, it, but this is where I'm going with it. And first off, we should say there are a lot of AEW haters out there. And I don't know how much of it's legit and how much of it's contrived. There are Facebook groups where they completely trash AEW no matter what they do and the fans no matter what they do. I do think a lot of it is contrived. That being said, a lot of the haters have been really quiet. We're recording this, Jeff, the day after or two days after what apparently some are saying was maybe the best wrestling pay-per-view of all time in this country. So apparently this pay-per-view was absolutely through the roof. But uh, it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me because when purists want to talk about professional wrestling and the way things that are done and they wouldn't have done that shit my generation and Kenny Omega never would have made it you got to remember I grew up on a weekly basis watching Dusty Rhodes 
wiggle his ass and tell people to kiss his ass. And Dusty Rhodes was a professional worker. He was a professional wrestler, but he wasn't a quote unquote wrestler. There was Dusty's matches included 30% comedy, sometimes even more. But yet that, that never shows up on the radar when people are complaining with the argument that you were just stating. That, you know, oh, Kenny Omega, he's, he's not a wrestling purist. This is not what he what it would have occurred 30 and 40 years ago. Bullshit. Because this absolutely, I saw Dusty Rhodes do a million comedy spots. Rufus R. Jones. I mean, there's a long list of guys. The Midgets, for example. So it, it's it's very selective what people cho- choose to get butt hurt and hate. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, uh, and how many times during a match, uh, since you, uh, referenced him, how many times did you see, uh, Dusty Rhodes do the Ollie shuffle? How many times did he do the bit where he, like, uh, swirls his hands around before flicking out a jab at somebody? Uh, because I don't know how many bar fights, uh, you've seen, Barry, but I often see people giving, uh, uh, their opponent an elbow <laughs> to the top <laughs> of the head. And, you know, yeah. and, you know, that, that always reminds me, I, I have a, an old friend, uh, that used to always laugh about the fact that Kerry Von Erich used the discus punch uh, as his finisher. And he would say, uh, how many times you ever seen a bar fight where somebody ends up using a discus punch and turns his back on his opponent before he hits his big move? You know, so it's all subjective, you know, Come it on. is. It is. But anyway, back to the match. Yeah. So please, I think you were talking about the match now. Oh, OK. So uh, I thought this was a, a good match, a fun match. Uh, it was uh, a showcase. God, when you think about the fact that uh, 10 years after the fact, uh, the impact that, that Danielson and uh, and Seth Rollins and Omega love them or like them, any of the three guys, this is an incredible showcase going back to 2008 at a bunch of guys that were just written, getting ready to really explode nationally. Now, uh, let's talk about the, uh, the go home for the match, Barry. We have Tyler Black outside the ring. Danielson is working Omega inside the ring, and uh, they're exchanging shots. And then Danielson uh, hits her up, winds up, catches Omega with a, oh, boy, Barry, this is the very definition of a, a big forearm shot where his elbow catches Omega right on top of the yeah. eyebrow. Yeah. And we are talking hard way, and, like, basically the side of Omega's head explodes. So if you hate Omega, you're going to want to watch this match because, holy crap, Barry, <laughs> does he get opened up. He does, too, and it's a uh, it, – there. And the point, and this is essentially where the end of the match occurs anyways, he is down, Omega is down, and Omega lifts his head up, and the blood is just pooling on the mat, and then he flips over, and, uh, yeah, you can see it. It's right on the eyebrow, and it's ugly. So let me just ask you your thoughts. Uh, so at the end of the match, uh, you know, Danielson goes over, and they're doing, you know, uh, Tyler is playing the heel, and he, you know, Begs off, heads back to the dressing room, doesn't want to do the, the ring of honor handshake. And so then he goes to shake Omega's hand. So Omega is doing the, you know, should I shake his hand? Should I not? And then he shakes his hand and the, the crowd is giving him the proverbial smattering of applause. Uh, but o- Omega, as he shakes his hand, Danielson looks at the crowd and actually says, Oh, come on. He tried really hard. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, if you're Omega, do you appreciate him doing that or no? What do you think? I I would say I would say he's probably fine with it too. It, it, this again, this isn't the Kenny Omega that became the megastar in Japan, right? This is the Kenny. This is up and coming young, as you said, young boy Kenny Omega. And look, he I, my assumption, and I think we saw this on the pay per view. 
that occurred this past weekend. Brian Danielson is, and from everything I've read, I mean, he's, he's, he's training Jade Cargill to be a better wrestler now. Like this is the dedication he's got. Danielson's not so concerned with putting himself over at this stage. Danielson's concerned with putting over young talent and making talent better for when he's not around. He may be the one guy, truly the one guy in pro wrestling that will give of himself at, at his detriment, his win loss record. I mean, MJF even alluded to it in, in a, a promo that he did that Danielson can't win the big one. And here we are again, where in the eyes of the fans, Danielson is lost again. So to me, I, I don't see anything wrong with it. I think a guy like Brian Danielson doing that, I think you have a lot of respect for. Yeah. So anyway, we will post a link to this match uh, in our uh, Facebook group, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowden and Barry. And uh, we, we would hope that you would check it out. If you hate Kenny Omega, hey, stay for the ending when he gets opened up hard way. <laughs> All right, Barry, good talk on the old match of the week. Now, Barry, it's time for a couple of things before we – we haven't quite rounded the turn and headed for home yet because there is a few things that I wanted to talk about with Barry Rose. Barry Rose, are you ready for a little rapid fire? Haven't done rapid fire in a while, Ooh, Barry. Oh, I like it. Yes, yes, thank you. I always like to throw you with the proverbial bone. So, Barry Rose, a quick question to you. Sweet Lou, are you with us? Oh, you bet. Ah, Mr. Kippelman has joined us. I invite Sweet Lou to join us on this segment because, gentlemen, I'm going to ask you a question that I heard come up the other day. We are, for the benefit of the discussion here, going to be including the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NHL. Gentlemen, of those four major sports here in the U.S. of A., who has the worst sports commissioner? Barry? Uh... I'm going to say it is, uh, it's the commissioner of the NFL. This, it's, it's Roger, 40 million plus a year, Goodell. That's who you're saying? Yeah, I'm going to go with that. And, and you and I actually did talk about this off air. Look, Adam Silver, it may be David Stern, though I like David Stern at the time, obviously no longer the commissioner of the, uh, the NBA. And I think he's dead as well. And Adam Silver to me fills a role, but the difference with guys like, uh, like Roger Goodell, they they seem captivated with keeping their name in the news, uh, making decisions that are completely illogical. Adam Silver's just kind of in the background for the most part. He's up. He's kind of like wallpaper. You know, you're not you're not getting a whole lot from him. He's there, but he's not a fan. You, you know, you know, when you hear from Adam Silver, what's that? Uh, Adam. Yeah. LeBron line two. Oh, hold on. That's, <laughs> there you go. That's it. That's it. So for the me, it's going to be Roger GM and Commissioner LeBron. But anyway, go ahead, please. I interrupted. Yeah. No, but that's 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 where I'd go exactly. Look in the NBA too, and there Tim Donahue. If you remember the whole scandal, and he was the ref that was uh, accused of cheating and throwing NBA games, and uh, you know it just there was a lot out there. But apparently, the story was much bigger uh, than that. The the NBA is all about television ratings. It's not about the game being played. It's not about uh, attendance at the uh, at the building when there's a game. It's about ratings. It's about overseas ratings and the money that they get for that, which apparently is a billion dollars. Uh, it, it's insane. Uh, Adam Silver knows it. It's a business. He's going to do it. Goodell's different. To me, the NFL is more of this old boys network, the shit that existed 20, 30, 40 years ago when it was commonplace 
to me, it's like it still exists in the NFL. I don't see that same in the NBA, though. All right, Lewis, before I throw it to you, let me just mention the the two names we mentioned, Adam Silver from the uh, NBA. We're talking Roger Goodell, NFL. Now, we have not mentioned Gary Bettman, who's the commissioner of the NHL. Uh, all the all the hockey fans love Gary Bettman, by the way. And Rob Manfredi. Now, Lewis, I know you are a big San Francisco Giants fan. There have been several rule changes that have been uh, enacted by Major League Baseball. So is your choice Rob Manfredi or one of the other three guys? So, first of all, pardon the hammering here. <laughs> Hammer, don't hurt him. Hammer yeah. time. Exactly. We're uh, we're still getting work done on our house since the the ongoing deluge since the beginning of the year. I think the um, work started during the Truman administration. <laughs> <laughs> Miller Fillmore, actually. Yeah, um, but yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't follow basketball or hockey at all, so I'm just disqualifying myself from those. Roger Goodell, I I think the whole concussion CTE stuff is horrible. I think the really the de facto shitting on the Rooney rule and not really following it in terms of minority coach coaches uh, is pretty shameful as well. Uh, but for me, as a baseball fan, it's a Rob Manfred, by the way. Um, oh, I thought it was Manfredi. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, nope. Uh, and so he's, <sighs> yeah, there, there have been a bunch of rule changes. And of course, uh, I mean, the, the rule changes that, that's, ha- that are happening this year, this season, uh, I think it's okay to to help kind of shave down the time um, on on the game. I'm not going to so, tell Brian last you said that. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> uh, but when it comes to like the you know kind of opening up the the postseason uh, bracket so that you know it's almost like the NHL or the NBA and that almost every team gets in there it seems. Um, and also with some of the, you know, kind of the way Manfred has been throwing his weight around, um, related in particular to the ongoing, um, struggle with the Oakland athletics to get a new ballpark somewhere. And Manfred is really doing the bad cop thing and pushing for Vegas. Uh, he's, yeah, he's, okay. Yeah, I mean, compared to somebody like Bud Selig, I don't know. He, in some ways, I think he makes Bud Selig look good, and Bud Selig was a used car salesman. So <laughs> that's a written feigning with the damp praise or, or or whatever that saying is, Lou. So uh, yeah. all right. So next question for you, Barry. As I was thinking about, you know, the, we were recording uh, this uh, the day after the AEW pay-per-view, but strictly talking about either Dynamite or Rampage, the uh, two main shows, Barry Rose, more likely to happen on an AEW broadcast, blood or the lights go out? What say you? <laughs> Guaranteed 100% on both of those. I'm going to say blood 
But at the same time, but the yeah. John Moxley match, it's definitely gonna. Have, yeah, there's definitely gonna be blood. There was so there is a Facebook group now, which I guess tracks every time Moxley bleeds, and they have like a stopwatch. And I think Moxley in the match with Adam Hangman Adam Page, which I heard was a great match. Uh, I heard it was like three minutes and twenty two seconds before he started to bleed. I so. was contacted by a friend of the show Ron Lemieux, who said, "Quote." Never heard. Right now, Adam Page and John Moxley are quote carving each other up. So I'm guessing there must have been copious amounts of blood. Yeah, I think there was. I actually heard uh, there was an Abdul the Butcher reference. Apparently, oh, there you fork, go. A fork made it into this match as well. So I have not seen this pay per view, and uh, someone in an, again another Facebook group had posted a link to it. I may try to check this out over the next couple of days, though. So, uh, let me ask you, sticking with the AW, last week's show, Barry Rose, the injury risk that guys like Action Andretti, Sammy Guevara, Commando, and AR Fox are taking by some of the bumps they're doing on the ladders, what say you? I say, I say my gut says somebody is going to get severely injured and or killed if they continue to do it. And if Warner Brothers Media was more concerned with, uh, what what Jay Briscoe had said over the fact that, you know, when you see some of these Sammy Guevara action Andretti spots from last week's uh, Dynamite, uh, that that's what they should be a little more concerned with. Look, we like guys that are going to lay it out, guys that get out there and guys that will wrestle. But as we've talked about uh, many times, you look at the King's Road style in Japan. And how many of these guys are injured? How many of these guys, you know, can barely walk or they're paralyzed? And I spoke with our friend Eric Cholminski last week, and Eric had just returned from Japan, and we were the talking. The Great Muda returning ma- or the uh, or the Kijimudo retirement match uh, or tour that he was on, which apparently went like over a year, according to Kevin Kelly. Yeah, exactly. But we were talking about Takayama, and uh, if you remember, Eric had been a part of being able to raise money to help pay his medical expenses. But uh, I asked him, I said, how's Takayama doing? And he said, well, we saw Minoru Suzuki at one of the wrestling stores. I forget what the name of that really popular wrestling store is. And they said, how is Takayama doing? And I think Suzuki, it was something, and I'm paraphrasing, was brain is okay, body not good at all. So I think he's got limited movement, but he look, the guy's stuck in a wheelchair, and that's all based off of wrestling. Action Andretti, Sammy Guevara. I, the only advice, I realize you're not listening, so, you know, and I hate when people. Wait a minute, what? What? I know, exactly, right? But it, at the end. I don't know about day, Action Andretti, but I know Sammy Guevara listens to this show. He's that's a true. Big fan. He's a big, big fan. fan. These guys don't need to do that shit. Take it to the, to the level that you want to take it without putting your body uh, at risk because if Sammy Guevara had missed that, uh, that, that, I guess it was a somersault, uh, a 450, a 365, I don't know, but he essentially did a somersault, a flip off of the top of a ladder onto Action Andretti, who was on another ladder. And had he been off and look, Sammy's fucked up before, right? You know, God knows. He could have killed himself. Action Andretti could have been seriously injured. There's no reason for it to go that far. We all like these exciting spots. I'm a big fan of it. But at some point, you got to say, this is just a little too far. So I think, and this is something that Barry and I talked about off the air, because occasionally we talk off the air. Yeah. But, you know, where is the culpability and responsibility for Tony Khan here? Because, you know, 
Tony Khan is the owner. He's the booker. He's the main dude. At some point, Tony needs to pull these guys aside and go, look, guys, uh, I appreciate what you're doing. Okay. You're laying it out there for the company, uh, for my company. You're doing a great job. Super exciting, uh, spots. I really enjoy them, but I don't want to be the first guy to have someone die in the ring on my watch. Okay. I don't want Sammy Guevara to miss and land and end up being paralyzed. Okay. I don't want you to hit it full on and have action Andretti die in front of a national audience on TBS. Okay. Uh, and you know, there are other guys who are doing crazy shit, you know, uh, uh, commando, by the way, what, what a fucking amazing spot he did during that match. But, uh, AR Fox was also doing spots where he was laying down a ladder and having guys dive on top of him. These guys are asking for, look at the dynamite kid the last couple months of his life and what he looked like because of all the injuries he had that started with what he was doing to his back. And by the way, what Dynamite was doing was nothing compared to what these guys are doing. Dynamite was doing headbutts, and he was taking shots into the guardrail. These fuckers are diving 20 feet in the air and landing on a fucking ladder that has no give to it, okay? This is not a disposable press board table that breaks and you have some cushion to your fall. These guys are essentially landing on fucking cement. And Tony Khan, I'm calling you out, and I'm telling you, you need to have a talk with these guys and say, ain't nobody dying or getting paralyzed on my watch. Tone this shit down. Tony, it's on you, buddy. Okay, last thing for Rapid Fire, Barry Rose. I heard this on another podcast. Amazingly, I do listen to other podcasts. And I thought this would make an interesting point of discussion. Barry Rose, you've, uh, hey, we're really shifting gears here, Barry. Uh, I'm guessing at some point, uh, Lord Baron, you've been to a wedding or two. Oh, Jeff, I was at your daughter's wedding. So Thank yes, you very much. Okay. My question to you that I heard in another podcast. Tell me. Yeah, let's go, uh, let's go sporting event wise. Have you ever been forced to miss what ended up being a significant sporting event because you were called to go to a wedding? I don't think so. No. Like, did you ever have to miss, say, one of the NBA finals games, a playoff game, uh, maybe a world series game, a no hitter, something like the, those lines? What do you think? I don't think so. No. Okay. So thanks for ruining the segment, but. Oh, absolutely, Jeff. It was, uh, yeah, <laughs> Thank you it was... very much. What I will say is, of course, uh, the story that I've told before that uh, uh, I always find very funny is when I got married to the second Mrs. Bowdrin, of course, I uh, had a member of the brothership, uh, our boy John McAdam, uh, who doesn't just stick to wrestling. He occasionally watch, uh, watches the NFL and college football, had him tape five football games for me because I <laughs> did not want to miss those football games. Uh, about three years later, uh, let's just say the uh, the wife found the uh, the videotapes of the games. What's this? Uh, this Notre Dame game. It took place on uh, the 28th of September. Uh, th- that was our wedding day. And I got quite the chewing out for that. But uh, thank you. Uh, and on that note, uh, Barry, before we go, hold on one second. Let me just. I'm writing something. Oh, I'm sorry, Barry. I was reviewing uh, the uh, the Observer from 1982 and going over some of Dave Meltzer's writings from 1982. And boy, he made a punctuation mistake here. He's writing like a high schooler. I'm going to have to make a comment. <clears throat> see what I did there, Barry? I do see what you On did. On that Barry. note, I will remind you that uh, Bowdrin and Barry breaking kayfabe with us uh, is in fact not dead yet, despite the taps at the beginning of the show. Uh, we are still here, and we're going to be here for a few more months on the regular episode, and then we're going to the Patreon episode. We're going to be giving you. Not just one episode, but two, the additional content episodes. You're looking at a minimum, a minimum of three hours of content a a month from us. Uh, You love us. You can't do without us. You can't get enough of us. We're truly, we're like the Beatles of podcasts, Barry. What do you think? We are. We're the, uh, 
were the Beatles. Who would I be if we were the Beatles, Jeff? Who would I be? Uh, yeah, yeah. Are you Ringo or George? Because I'll, yeah. I'll go with George. <laughs> I'll go, yeah, I mean, Ringo's still alive, which is that's a benefit. But That's true. Uh, yeah. That's true. Yeah. I guess that makes me Paul because I'm still yeah. here, too. There you go. Anyway, so uh, on that note, I will remind you that Breaking Kayfable about it and Barry still here and still going on is <laughs> a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I still love my boy Gunny. Haven't stopped. Never will. You can count on that for as long as we're on the air. Uh, my co-host, Barry Rose. Uh, apparently sharing a bed on the weekends up in New York City with Linda. I'm still aghast what? about that. Without the benefit of marriage, by the way. Sweet Lou, I know is married, so I don't mind the fact that he's sharing a bed with his wife out there in the city by the bay doing the production duties. Lou, take this into port because, quite frankly, I'm outraged.